Hey, everybody. Welcome to the... It's Lent. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you penitential conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my penitential partner, uh, the Pillar's co-founder and editor, Ed Condon. Ed, how are you? It is a penance sometimes with you, <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, Ed, it is. It is. And uh, a blessed Lent to you, Ed. Uh, yeah. I, I wish you a... Well, I, you know, people tend to get very uh, sort of quiet and morose and reflective during that and here's the thing i don't i don't view lent for myself as a as a particularly um quiet time Uh, you like to make a lot of lenten noise no not that i like to make a lot of lenten noise i just don't i mean you know you obviously as part of the spiritual discipline of lent you want to you know step up your step up well here's the thing so the homily i heard this morning which i thought was very good when I went to mass uh, talked about the the three weapons of of Lent being prayer fasting and almsgiving and these unquestionably uh-huh. are and that these are uh, weapons of spiritual self-defense in in what is a time of spiritual combat uh, mm-hmm. and I and I think that's very important and I think um, you know certainly I, I try and step up my my daily prayer regimen um, fasting and almsgiving all that sort of stuff it's great uh, and they are excellent weapons of self-defense. Um, but I think it's also important to play a little offense during Lent. You know, I, do, I, I think it's a time not to necessarily just be passive in um, in entering into the season and to be, you know, sort of quiet and everything. But, you know, you, you, there's there's room to there's room to get on the front foot here. I, I think to be, you know, to try and be a little more aggressively spiritual or aggressive with one's spiritual life is, is I think, um, it's something I aspire to do every year. Uh, not to just, you know, uh, involve you know get involved in the sort of cultural cliche of diet and exercise but you know to, right, right, to right. try and do some heavy lifting spiritually so to speak so what does that look like for you uh i try and i try and scale up to the full liturgy of the hours during lent really yeah at their canonical times uh n- you know margin of error so the liturgy of the hours is the prayer of the church that um contains psalms and other scripture readings and readings as well from the saints um, and have been prayed in one form or another in the life of the church really since time immemorial and been more formalized during the rise of monasticism and then going on from there and so on and so forth. And many people are in the habit of praying uh, evening prayer and morning prayer and, uh, you know, clerics in the life of the church pray at least morning prayer and evening prayer. Um, most, most pray more. So essentially the Liturgy of the Hours is a way in which the day is punctuated by by prayer, by maybe uh, between five and I suppose fifteen minutes of prayer with the scriptures and um, uh, making some intercessions and supplications to God, and uh, and so there are these periodic punctuations of the day with prayer, um, which are referred to as canonical hours. And and I, how many canonical hours are there? I mean, there's the office, there's lauds, morning prayer, um, there's. Uh, there's midday prayer, there's afternoon prayer, evening. And night prayer, so six with the option of seven if you're doing midday and either late morning or early afternoon, I guess. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it does. Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, uh, yeah, so lauds, prime, What? what's next? Uh, if you're looking for me to round the bags on the sort of traditional Latin titles where I'm not going to get even close. <laughs> doesn't good enough no, anyway they're like seven, I'm not gonna get there. seven canonical hours and so you pray all the canonical hours i try to i'm i'm you know it, it's ash wednesday so it's early to tell how i'll do i i i rarely when i've attempted to do this bad at a thousand but i usually manage to you know i my goal is to get to you know a steady four a day without you know missing a beat I, you know I'll, I'll be honest midday prayer and afternoon prayer yeah it, it'll be it'll be more often than not one or the other but now i had intended to um I had intended to have a whole conversation in which we talked about how our Lent was going and we sort of self-assessed ourselves at, at having a very good Lent before I sort of let the cat out of the bag that we're recording this oh, I'm on sorry. Ash Wednesday. I didn't realize. Mere, mere hours into Lent. But, uh, but, but as it is, you have, you, have, uh, you have let that cat out of the bag. So there it is. So uh, really, you've had only our, the, the beginning of, of Lent to, to, to yeah, practice Yeah, I'm, I'm knocking it out of the park so far, though. Good. I'm really, really glad for you. Yeah, I'm fasting out of the park as well. You know, do you have this? I 
I will often fast, quote unquote, uh, not as a spiritual discipline, but just out of poor life habits. For most days of the week, I will miss breakfast and lunch and, you know, have dinner after my wife comes home from work and I've had a chance to prepare it for her. Uh, but on days of actual canonical fasting, it's like, I just, I really want to bagel at like 1030 in the morning. I know. I know. And I will otherwise go yeah. through the entire day without even thinking about food. And it's, I mean, but I mean, this is, the, I mean, again, this is to the point of, you know, if you, if it's a day when you know you're supposed to be fasting and this is, you know, about, about it being spiritual combat that of course, if you, if you set out to intentionally fast, as opposed to just saying, no, I'd rather work than think about food, uh, then, then you're going to be tempted to break that fast. And, you know, this is, this is part of the game, man. I, I think that's right. Yeah. I often, I, I almost always eat breakfast because the kids, we all eat breakfast together, but then I often won't really kind of come out of my office again or think about eating until it's dark and then often won't actually eat dinner until the kids have gone to bed and by then I just have like a little something. So you wouldn't know to look at me, but I don't eat as much as you might think. But still on a fasting, on a day of actual fasting, it's sort of like, oh my gosh, this is insufferable. And then I look at my, my watch and it's like 9.15 and I'm like, I don't know uh, if I can make it. Yeah, so it it is, I think... Um, we're more aware of the sacrifice when we're making it sort of in a conscious way. But the thing about that that I think is helpful and and that I'd like to get your thoughts on too is there's a way in which Lent, the disciplines of Lent, the spiritual disciplines of Lent and the physical disciplines of Lent, the mortifications of Lent can become, there's a way in which there's a temptation to allow them to become sort of of exercises in stoicism, like um, how much sort of willpower do I have? How strong can I be? How indifferent to suffering can I be? And it does not seem to me that that's really what uh, sort of Lent as a sort of test of our own strength or a sort of rite of passage of a difficult thing seems to me to sort of miss um, what these kind of sacrifices are really supposed to be about. You seem to be describing a Pelagian attitude. To I am indeed describing a Pelagian attitude. Ah, did was that where you wanted to go with this, or did I just get lucky? No, yeah, I just wanted to give you a chance to, you know, say oh. something about that. Okay, no, yeah, I, I think it's true. I mean, but I mean, this is part and parcel. I think this is the sort of opposite side of the coin of the very uh, sort of secularized New Year's resolution approach to Lent, which is this is a time for self improvement, or you know, something like that to to give something up with a view of you know, oh, I'm going to give up my bad habit. I mean, if you if you have a genuinely vicious habit, you shouldn't give that up for Lent. You should just stop doing it because it's vicious. Right. Um, you know, but this is, as, you know, as I said, this, Lent is not a period of diet. You know, it's not time for dieting. It's, you know, it's a time for depriving yourself, but not, you know, as a sort of show of spiritual fortitude. It is, the purpose of it is, you know, like I said, it's it's a time of spiritual combat that you do this as a defensive mechanism against the onslaught of the devil who is always prowling around like a roaring lion. Um, but most especially because we're gearing up towards something that Lent is not a, Lent isn't a sort of session in the spiritual weight room for the sake of, you know, posing in front of the mirror and flexing, which I only, do you, do you go to the gym? Do I go to a gym to lift weights? I'd make no observations about what you may or may not do when you get there. No, I do not. Okay. I've only been to the gym once in my life, a gym once in my life. I went with, when I was living in London, my, my brothers-in-law would all go to the same gym and they invited me once and I went there and. Uh, I'm never. I, I have never been back. I I will never go back. <laughs> it was. I was very uncomfortable, JD. I was very uncomfortable. Get um, it out. Uh, there was there was a lot of repressed homoeroticism going on. And oh wow, maybe they took you. Maybe maybe they took you to a very weird gym. I don't know. No, it wasn't but... a very weird gym. It was a perfectly ordinary Virgin Active in their neighborhood. It was just there was a lot of guys sort of you know flexing in front of the mirror and sort of posing and you know eyeing each other up and comparing of you know who's got bigger arms and all that stuff i just sorry I, so i'm going to come back to that i really am but the gym was a ver, was virgin active yeah like R- richard branson's yeah ver, I, I i would just like to say uh, i i would just like to say that um the uh <laughs> the way in which virgin has a monopoly on all facets of british life is really fascinating to me well it's not so much monopoly it's my understanding of how um Branson, who is a serial entrepreneur, to be sure, uh, tends to spin these things up and then spin them off, I think. Uh, I think rarely does he, for any length of time, maintain total direct control. But like, for example, Virgin Radio, he spun up out of nothing and then sold off. And uh, I I think he's done the same with a couple of other things. I don't know if he has a controlling interest in Virgin Active now 
or I would imagine that anything which is licensed with the Virgin name, Bran- Branson seems like the kind of person who likes control. I would imagine that anything that's licensed with the sort of Virgin branding would be something he'd want to keep a lot of control over. But I could be wrong about that. I, I don't know. I all I know is he's a guy who he likes to slap his name on stuff and make money, and you know, fair play to him. He's okay. So you were you. So anyway, long story short, long story Lent short, is I not like an extremely the uncomfortable thing, and that this is not this is not the attitude to go into Lent in that you're just you're going into the gym to you know hit the weights or the treadmill or whatever it is with a view to sort of, you know, striking a pose and checking out the progress you've made in the mirror, that this is a, that Lent is a linear journey towards something. It's specifically a linear journey towards Easter and that the the spiritual combat, this sort of time in the desert that Lent is supposed to be these 40 days um, is a, is a period of fortification, um, both for, you know, our lives in general, uh, but most especially to enter in well into Holy Week. That that's what we're aiming towards. That you know, right. the, all these things that we're not doing and saying in the liturgy now, uh, you know, particularly in mass, you know, not doing the glory and things like that. Um, that this isn't a question of saying, oh, well, this is you know, so we can we can feel miserable. It's you no, know, so that we can have them back. Right. With exactly. Joy. Right. At, at Easter, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's like you know, it, it you know, it's kind of like you know, you don't eat Thanksgiving morning because you know you. You want to you want to be really be hungry when you get to <laughs> to dinner, you know. And I think too, I, I think that's right. And, and I think the other the other side of that, or maybe a um, an an aspect of that, is that the the fasting and mortification that we enter into in Lent, which really, I mean, fastings and mortification ought to be some part of our spiritual life all the time. But the fastings and mortification into which we enter into into which we enter, especially in Lent, are uh, rather than sort of saying, so it's it's um, we're fasting today and. We're both saying that we're hungry, and so so one can be hungry and then sort of say like, "I'm hungry." No, I'm I, I can get through this, you know. Like I'll get I'll grip my teeth and get, and and bear it. Rather, I mean, not that being hungry is for five minutes is all that much of a suffering, but but rather the idea is to say, um, Lord, as I experience this hunger, I unite myself to your suffering on the cross, and I and I offer up this tiny and insignificant suffering for some spiritual good or for some real good, some practical good, because we believe that our suffering, I mean, this is to me like one of the most fascinating things about sort of being a Christian um, is this idea that we can, because Christ went to the cross and redeemed suffering, we can genuinely sort of join uh, our suffering to his by just by an act of the will in such a way that even the tiny little mortification of being hungry for five minutes can be efficacious for some good, can, can truly sort of be co-participative in it, affecting some good uh, for our salvation or for the salvation of other people. I mean, that's just, it's just to me, um, mind-blowingly fascinating that we can make um, good of little indignities or, or sufferings in that way. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It is a it is a wonderful, um, I don't know if miracle is the right word, but it is a wonderful, mysterious reality of the Christian spiritual life that this is true. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said, I, I think something that we tend to ignore uh, as a daily reality is is the fact that we are constantly in a in a form of spiritual combat that, you know, there um, there is a battle to be entered into both for our own soul and for the, the world and that every Christian has a has a role to play in this. And how we do that is, you know, you take up arms against the devil and the three yeah, exactly. great weapons of the church that are especially emphasized at Lent are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And those three weapons of of the church kind of correspond to the sort of three temptations of the the world, the devil, and the flesh, the ways in which we can be tempted sort of away from God. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah they are, I mean, the... The image of the first Lent, if you like. I mean, there's there's obviously the the journey of the people of Israel for forty years in the desert, but also the you know the the time of Christ in the desert before he entered into his public life, um, and the rejection of you know worldly power, recognition, um, the the sort of you know temptation to to lean on and serve the the flesh in in food and things like that. That these are you know as you said the the three weapons of spiritual combat are very much answers to those to those things, and you know. I think it's cool. But I mean, again, you know, as I said, the, the 40 days that Christ spent in the wilderness were not, you know, an exercise in sort of pointless spiritual weightlifting for the sake of it. Well, but he, was it was, neither, he was neither on, he was neither on the, in the wilderness as a sort of like, yeah, some sort of stoic, te- you know, sort of test. One, I, I want to take myself to the limits of my endurance. You know what I mean? No, it was, it was an act of self-fortification spiritually before entering into his public ministry. 
it's a time of preparation for the for the mission, which we should, you know, hopefully after Easter and, you know, in the days after Easter, be be re-energized and reinvigorated and find new purpose in doing. So which, what, what, one aspect of Lent that I'm sort of trying to, um, or not trying to, but that I just find sort of naturally emerging this year, again, six hours into Lent or whatever, is that... Um, there's a way in which there's a way in which one of one good thing that can be done, sort of one worthwhile sort of practice that can be done in Lent is to like spend a little bit of time, like just thinking about what Easter is going to be like. You know what I mean? Like I was talking with my kids this morning just about like what Easter candies we really like, and uh, to be honest, if we spend forty days like genuinely sort of talking about what Easter candies we really like, building anticipation, 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 how much sweeter is the celebration? So you know, if you spend if if you were to spend your whole Lent, uh, sort of planning for an Easter feast to come, I think it would be a, the kind of thing that might help you to be disposed to, 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 that might help us to be disposed to the recognition that, in fact, we spend our whole life sort of planning and anticipating for the feast that is to come. Absolutely. Uh, it, it will be candy that I'm thinking about, but yes. Well, I was with the, we were, the kids and I were just, the kids were sure, sure, sure. talking about their candies. Yeah, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm sure. It was the kids. <laughs> Well, look, I, at the end of the day, Ed, I can have Easter candy whenever the hell I want. <laughs> you are, you are a grown man, JD, and yes, you can. And I will have it if I want it. That's right. But yeah, no, I think that's good. And you're probably thinking about your various meats. We well, I did not various. I'm actually as much as I like to do the whole, you know, the sort of whole Noah's Ark at Thanksgiving into their feast. I'm I, I do the lamb at, at Easter. That you know, we go the whole way there and. There's gonna there's gonna be some some grilled and some smoked. Uh, I, I keep wanting to do the whole lamb in a pit. Yeah, that would be awesome. I've always wanted to do that. I've uh, I, I've sourced a lamb. I know where I can get a whole lamb. Uh, the hard part is for me has been finding at least the last two the last year and this year coming. I assume uh, finding the people to eat the lamb once I do it because you know the missus and I we've got hearty appetites, but I think a whole sheep between the two of us might be. Might be a tall ask. Yeah, yeah, and that's something. I mean that that brings up an interesting point because this year, as we anticipate Easter, we're also at the very same time anticipating. I'd like to hope that as we anticipate Easter, we're also anticipating the idea that we might celebrate Easter more broadly with, with other people. You know, I I'd like to hope and believe that we're we're anticipating the the celebrations of your. It, it seems to me that at a certain point. I think I've talked about this before, but at a certain point, I'm going to throw one hell of a bash. And, and I, I would like to think that I might be throwing that bash for, you know, at Easter. Um, th- it's funny, this time, it, one thing in, in Scripture, one thing in the Scriptures is that it, you constantly see in the Old Testament like this, as the Israelites are sort of in and out of Israel, you know, in exile, out of exile, in exile, out of exile, you, you can see in their exilic periods this, like, longing for, like, you know, someday we'll return and, and someday to Israel and, and you know, back to Zion and these things. And one thing that I have experienced in this time of the, the sickness is just the same thing of, like, one day in, in normalcy, you know, just, like, this return of, this hope for re- return of things uh, cherished and, um, and and not yet attained. So I don't know. It seems in a certain way, this time seems in a certain way just to sort of correspond with that aspect of Lent and maybe even make that aspect of Lent more palpable or real or understandable for us. I don't know. It it would be nice to think that uh, Easter will be a little closer to normal this year. I mean, there are a couple of dioceses that have reinstituted the Sunday obligation, so that that bodes well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't happen to live in Michigan, so I I don't know that that immediately um, augurs anything for, for me. But... You know, I, hopefully, one step at a time. We'll see. I don't know. I suspect that in California, they'll just ban Easter. <laughs> it's the kind of so. stuff they do there. They'll say no one's allowed to go to Easter Mass, and then Gavin Newsom will have some, you know, gigantic, yeah. you know, bacchanal at the French Laundry or something. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think it probably is. Probably for, like, the spring solstice or something. He'll, he'll pick a <laughs> pagan festival. God, I, I hate that a- guy. I don't, I don't, have, I don't. He's a perfect uh, example of a, of a universal human truth, JD, which is you can't trust a man who slicks his hair back. Yeah, fair enough. There you go. Fair enough. Well, what about Pat Riley? I don't trust him. Fantastic oh. basketball coach, but you know, I'm, you know. Yeah, I'm not saying I'd leave Pat Riley around a stack of hundreds or something like that, but right, that's my if point. I'm building a basketball team, I trust him. Yeah. Um, listen, 
where, where, where are we now? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell if we're just on a detour or if this is actually what you intended to do, can you? I, I can't. And then I was going to talk about This California. is my genius. I was going to talk about California banning mentholated Easter because you might know that a big soapbox of mine is my frustration with various California cities that have banned the sale of mentholated cigarettes, which I think is a Is very, that city by city? I thought the whole state had done it. I think it's... Well, has I mean, the whole state gone there now? Oh, yeah. The whole state has indeed gone there now, which is, I mean, I think extremely paternalistic and weird and the kind of thing that just doesn't make any sense. It, but, well, it makes sense if you're a racist. Well, I mean, that's just the thing is... Uh, man, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to go on the soapbox, but that's just the thing: is it's it basically the California's idea in banning mentholated cigarettes. I mean, and, and legislators were very open about this. They said, "Look, um, mentholated cigarettes are consumed disproportionately by um, African Americans, and in fact, the tobacco industry like targets their advertising of mentholated cigarettes to African Americans." And I mean, and, and legislators again were very open about this. Therefore, to protect the African American community from the advertising of t- the tobacco industry, we're going to ban mentholated cigarettes. But it's like, well, first of all, if you want to ban cigarettes altogether, I don't think you know. I'm not crazy about that idea, but that's sort of one thing. But if you want to say like that, I will. We're going. I to will be, be in the streets if they sure. But my point is, if you're going to say, like, we're going to ban the kind of cigarettes that are targeted at this particular community, and especially at people of this particular ethnicity, it does seem like a kind of paternalism that can be indeed described as racism and is a very sort of weird and uh, unsettling move. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I don't have it. The reason I keep stammering every couple of minutes is because I didn't. You keep thinking about Gavin Newsom wanting to punch something? I have no, that I, I don't. I, I was, there was something I wanted to say about Gavin Newsom, but it was a while ago, so I've moved on. But mostly it's that I don't have a transition. I, you know, usually I sort of, this is the point where I have some sort of extremely dopey transition from the one thing to the next. Are we moving to the thing that I wanted to talk about? Well, you, you want to talk about, like, Ed was complaining before the show because he says that we never talk about the things that he wants to talk about, but. I think that we do, and uh, you listed, <laughs> and that's all that matters. And that's all that matters. And and you listed like five things that you want to talk about. So Ed, here's my transition. What would you like to talk about? Oh, I was going to go for a slightly different transition. Speaking of oppressive governments, <laughs> okay, there you go. Speaking of oppressive governments. Speaking of oppressive governments. Uh, no. So one of the things that happened this this abbreviated week, because we are recording this podcast today early. Normally we record it on Thursday, and today is Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Is the the are those lovable rogues in the communist party of china have issued some new rules uh governing religious practice and specifically religious ministers stroke clergy in the country mm-hmm. uh which come into force i think in may 1st something like that yeah and these are these are not uh what you would call free spirited I, no. I would not describe them as a as a portrait of religious freedom no, uh, on right. the contrary, uh, you have to all religious ministers of any of any faith or denomination are required to register with the government. And if you do not register with the government, you are an outlaw uh, and you can, of course, be arrested, detained, imprisoned, harassed. And at least if the treatment of underground Catholic priests and bishops is anything to go by, you can also be tortured and disappeared. Right. So these new these new rules, which kind of reassert the the need for religious ministers to register with the government, have a number of other provisions as well. They do, and some of these are specifically Catholic. Uh, the process for n- choosing and consecrating Catholic bishops in China was treated in a in a separate set of articles in these new regulations, which provided that the Chinese bishops' conference would select candidates for promotion to the episcopacy and the cpca which is the uh communist state oh yeah sorry the yeah which is the state sponsored and controlled uh catholic church in china the cpca is the chinese patriotic catholic association and was the schismatic church in china up until the 2018 vatican china deal um will then you know with the bishops conference okay these candidates and see them registered once they have been consecrated bishops and this has occasioned some uh, some speculation, some interpretation in the media, in Catholic media more broadly, and in fact in secular media too, that this is, uh, China has sort of tipped its hand and said, aha, they are junking the Vatican-China deal, which of course famously the entire purpose of which was to grant the Chinese government a say in and a mechanism for uh, weighing in on 
that some would say, and at least it looks probable to me that they were granted a veto on, uh, Episcopal candidates for Catholic diocese in China. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, we did what we tend to do, which is we picked up the phone, we started calling people. We called a couple of people in China, um, some some clerical friends of ours in China, in Hong Kong and and elsewhere. And the the reaction surprised me because I read these regulations like most people did and said, wow, okay, so there's no mention of the Holy See in here at all. There's no mention right. of the Vatican. This is how the Chinese state says bishops are chosen for the CPCA. Mm-hmm. And uh, this looks like they're just basically saying, yeah, we're going to do whatever we want. And that was, you know, I, I called you and, you know, said, have you seen this on what was it? Monday night, I Monday guess. Monday night, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at about like 8 o'clock my time or something like that. Mm-hmm. And said, well, I know exactly and, what I'm going to be writing tonight. And well, we thought it was just going to be kind of an analysis of uh, an analysis piece that said the uh, these new rules from Beijing, you know, don't sufficiently account for the Holy See's involvement in the appointment of bishops and, um, you know, and or may excluded. well indicate in, – yeah, and may well indicate that they intend to – uh, you know, kind of cut the Vatican out of the process of appointing bishops. That they would just that the, that essentially Beijing would decide on who would be diocesan bishops in Chinese dioceses, and then have bishops consecrate them, the absent the approval of the Pope, which would be an act of schism. That's what we thought the story in the analysis was going to be. But then, but then we talked to some people, and uh, the response I got from the the ground was very very interesting. Which was I was told that. Basically, it seemed very unlikely that this these new sets of regulations, bad as they are, uh, actually would have any effect on the operation of the Vatican-China deal on the you know selection and promotion of candidates for the episcopacy in China, and that the fact that these regulations are silent on the Holy See's role in all of this was, uh, as one person put it to me, well, of course, it's China. What did you mm-hmm. think was going to happen? They were going right. to, you know put in black and white an internal law that they're you know recognize the authority of a foreign power in in the internal operations of china you've got to be crazy and i thought well okay but you know that 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 seems you know thin gruel like you know what do you think is going to happen and you know the more we talk to people the more it became apparent that no this is really how you know these things this this gives us if you like a sort of peek behind the curtain of what does the what is the process of making the sausage uh in terms of promoting bishops in china look like from the Chinese perspective, which is if you if you like where the Vatican China deal sort of where the rubber meets the road there is, okay, so the Chinese Bishops Conference, which is not, I, I should note, a sort of, you know, state controlled group. There are certainly state appointed bishops in there, and among them I'm sure are some pretty fully paid up Xi Jinping fans and, you know, good good honest serving members of the Communist Party. But there are also a lot of good and faithful, long serving Catholic bishops in there. Um, yeah. So it's not that the Chinese Bishops Conference is, is a puppet organization for the state by any stretch. That the Chinese Bishops Conference proposes candidates, and then the CPC with the CPCA, you know, agrees on those. So if you know, it, as seems likely that you know, it's it's Rome's half of it, if you like, is to tell the Bishops Conference this is who the guy is, or maybe this is the this is the list of three acceptable candidates, and you know, figure out with the local authorities which one is which one it's going to be or whatever. But then, even so, at the end of the day, Rome has to give its approbatio. Rome has to approve that final guy. Yeah, I mean, only the Pope can appoint bishops right. um, and approve candidates. But, I mean, so here's the thing, and I have lingering concerns about whether this is actually being done. And so this is part of the other reason why I was willing to accept that maybe this, these norms don't actually intend to do anything with regards to the operation of the Vatican-China deal, because I'm not 100% clear on exactly how well the Vatican-China deal is functioning. To the the Vatican-China deal is not functioning. There have been, there have been what, since 2018, there are, there are 12 million Catholics in China, and there are a lot of dioceses, obviously, for 12 million Catholics, and... Because the Chinese church had been split between the underground church and the CPCA for so long, basically there are a lot of very old bishops or dioceses with no bishop. And so the hope in 2018 was like, oh, there's this deal. Whatever else is thought about this deal, it will make straight the path for appointing bishops to these dioceses with no bishop. But it hasn't happened. There have been three appointments, and one of them is highly suspect, where it was kind of like the guy was very quickly ramrodded through, and there's a question about whether the Holy See was really involved in the way that it was supposed to be or not. Yeah, that's and that's exactly what I, the the case I was going to raise is. You know, there was this there was this bishop in uh, November, I think, uh, who the CPCA just announced, "Hey, we've got a new bishop. Here are the pictures of his episcopal consecration. He's the new mm-hmm. bishop of X diocese. Hooray! Happy for Hooray. the people of that diocese." And and I I remember when this happened, 
uh, we were trying to shake out of the Holy See press office some sort of acknowledgement about this and going, you know, what this wasn't in the Bulletino, which is where right. Episcopal appointments are officially announced. You know, there's been no indication from any Vatican department that a bishop uh, for China had been chosen or proven or received the papal approbatio. And, you know, I, I try to keep a thermometer fairly close to the center in Rome about Chinese Episcopal appointments because there are one or two that I keep waiting to happen and think will be enormously significant. Uh, and there was no word about those. And there was basically silence from the Vatican for a day. And then the next day, the Vatican um, press director put out a statement recognizing this guy as, you know, the third bishop to be appointed under the terms of the Vatican-China deal. This is great. And of course, Rome was involved in everything. And, uh-huh. and it is like, well... <laughs> If this if this was a, a if this is the process working, how come Rome didn't announce it? How come Rome right. didn't you know seem to know this was going on and you know appeared to basically be saying, well, I guess we got to accept it now. So I I, I don't see the I, I'm inclined now having talked to a couple people on the ground who, to be clear, were not saying, oh, these regulations are fine, everything's working well. They were saying, no, the situation is nightmarish over here. This is a catastrophe. The Chinese Communist Party is a genocidal monster machine, mm-hmm. but. Basically, what they said is, don't read too much of these new regulations. They aren't really about dealing with Catholics who, you know, they pretty much feel like they've got their thumb on pretty hard already. Right. Instead, they're intended to deal with Protestants who, uh, Protestant house churches that are largely U.S. funded, which the Chinese government does not like at all. And um, who do things that the Vatican and Catholics in China don't do. So, for example, you know, part of the, the very controversial program of sinicization of religion in China, uh, which which Cardinal Paroline has been very keen to play along with, you know, involves the premise that you can be a good Catholic and a good Chinese communist. Now, theologically, obviously, you cannot. And there are many bishops who have you know, taken a stand and said, I'm not joining the CPCA. I can't sign up to this. I cannot accept um, and affirm the things that the Communist Party want me to accept and affirm because this is a violation of Catholic doctrine, the Holy See, in an unsigned piece of guidance, right. very brave, um, an unsigned piece of guidance has said, well, these bishops are entirely within their rights to you know, not sign up to the CPCA if they have legitimate qualms of conscience and their right of conscience has to be um, respected. <laughs> the, the, the advice that the Holy See, again, unsigned, Mm-hmm. Um, it just you know came out of the Secretary of State without anyone's signature at the bottom, basically suggested that they should take a Jesuitical approach and make a mental reservation of conscience when signing up to right. uh, the CPCA, which is, you know, it's not often you see the Holy See saying, basically lie, yeah. um, which, you know, is not is not a great Christian witness. Um, but whatever whatever you make of uh, all of this, it, it is nevertheless a fact that Catholic clergy are, have been instructed and even in the underground church do not sort of act as agents of civil subversion. Whereas in some of these Protestant house churches, which, as you said, uh, tend to be uh, involve pastors that are uh, American trained or American funded or, you know, American trained and funded at, you know, one step removed or whatever. Uh, the, these people make it very clear that you have to renounce your membership of the Communist Party and they make you do that formally. And then they publicize these as sort of conversions away from being a Chinese communist. And, you know, they're much more deliberately provocative towards the state. And so, um, you know, for obvious reasons, they have attracted rather more attention from the government. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think the the deal, the, these new rules from Beijing will do, though, is they may... Uh, this is, the, so I suppose, the danger of the China deal from the very beginning. Um, but what what Beijing has said is uh, appointment of bishops to the Catholic Church in China will be undertaken through a process that involves the Chinese Bishops' Conference and the CPCA, the, uh, excuse me, the, the CPCA, the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, the Chinese Bishops' Conference, the Chinese Communist Party, and the official government of, of the country, and, uh, and, and not mentioned— the Holy See at all. Now, they have a separate agreement that delineates the involvement of the Holy See, but it seems to me that the Holy See is not going to be now in any position at any point to sort of walk away from the Vatican-China deal, knowing that if they don't have this deal, Beijing fully intends to continue appointing bishops to, to Chinese dioceses with or without them. I mean, in a certain way, this may sort of shackle the Holy See to uh, uh, to Beijing's process rather than Beijing, rather than the Holy See having it the sort of freedom of its own process. Uh, I mean, I, I you think, think you're, so? I think you're correct in your assessment. I don't know that this represents anything new. New in I that think, sense? Okay. I, I think this has always been the case that, you know, the publication of, of these rules 
is if you like the it, it's just put the gun on the table but everybody knew the gun was in the lap anyway yeah you that's, know that that's, this that's, is yeah, yeah. the entire reason that the the vatican china deal was renewed in uh last year in 2020 despite the sort of hilarious uh spin that was attempted to be put on it by archbishop gallagher who's the sort of diplomatic number two at the secretary of state and cardinal Paroline, both who said you know oh, it's working really well it's great there are 50 empty dioceses but we've appointed at that time two bishops you know it's really right. it, you know we're doing a bang-up job um you know despite that sort of hilarious attempt to spin this as you know cardinal Paroline at one point said that this the deal was working well and it was going to make the church a more effective evangelical witness in china which is just such i mean i don't know how you force those words out between right. your teeth uh, you right. know cardinal zen bit back hard at that and you know said no actually this is damaging the church's moral witness and credibility in the evangelization in china and one day the communist party of china will fall and there will be a new china being constructed and the catholic church may not be well won't have the a table, seat at the table right exactly because yeah. it will, they'll be seen as collaborators but you know that leaving all that to one side the whole reason the vatican has been willing to swallow all of this and continue to do deals with a nakedly genocidal government that has more than a million people in concentration camps that are being subjected to torture, forced abortion, ideological indoctrination, systematic sexual torture, all of these things is because they know that the Chinese will, if you don't play along, simply go back to what they did before, which is say, fine, the CBCA is just going to set up a parallel church. They have bishops who have valid apostolic succession and who can ordain priests and consecrate bishops, and they will do so with or without Vatican approval. And you can either have a say in the process and hope to sort of mitigate the kind of candidates that will be advanced, or you can have no say, and they'll just appoint down-the-line communists. And, right. you know, that's I think that's always been the case. I think the Vatican right. knows that's the case. I don't think that's ever been a particularly implicit threat. I think it's been pretty explicitly understood. And, you know, I mean, this is the problem. Is And this is why I think the Vatican-China deal was such a terrible idea in the first place is because you're you all you have you have won you know there there is public protestations to one side the vatican china deal has not been a success because it has failed at the very thing that it said it was going to do which is provide a sort of state safety and stability for the underground church which it hasn't that's why you have underground bishops still on the run and underground priests being arrested and harassed and uh, underground catholic churches being bulldozed it has not secured the appointment of bishops for china because, as I said, you've only had three in two and a half years now. Right. Um, one of those, as you said, is an extremely suspect case. So the deal isn't working. But in, in addition to that, by entering into the deal in the first place, all you can do, the only you know sort of implied threat you have is to walk away from it. And however bad you think the situation is now, it can always get worse. You know, it can always get infinitely, infinitely worse. You know, what happens if the, you know, if the Vatican were to sort of down tools and say we're canceling the agreement and we're going to speak out very forcefully and publicly about the egregious human rights violations going on in China, what could happen? Well, the Chinese could seize control of all Catholic institutions and buildings, like, for example, in Hong Kong Uh and appoint a a really down the line communist bishop for Hong Kong and co-opt all the Catholic schools that are already under right. pressure in, in Hong Kong, you know, right. What could they, there's all manner of ways in which the Chinese could make this infinitely worse for Chinese right. Catholics. And you know, that this is why you don't dine with the devil. This right. is why you don't do it mm-hmm. is because there's no way out. They are yeah. completely caught in a trap. And yeah. it, I mean, it infuriates me, but it also, I mean, it just goes to show you that the Secretary of State likes to pretend it has this great, you know, long game plan and is being very diplomatically subtle. And it's like anyone could see this coming. People did see this coming. People saw this coming and wrote about it at length and at volume in 2018 when this deal was being sort of, you know, quietly agreed and people were beginning to to let it out that, you know, all those discussions going on and people said, this is what will happen. And this has happened. One way not to be in the trap which I think you're right. I think your assessment is spot on. But one way not to be in the trap, and, and I, I, I say this with the caveat that it's extremely easy for me to say this while making a podcast in the United States of America instead of being in the People's Republic of China. But one way not to be in the trap is for the Holy See to say we have a completely different set of values and we care about the unity of the church and we're going to appoint bishops. And if you're going to persecute those bishops, they're going to laugh in your face because they believe that their persecution is going to be the most influential seedbed of the conversion of your country that is possible. Um <laughs> That is the only way. The only way not to be in the trap is not to care. Um, 
And the only way not to care is to have the kind of extraordinary faith that says that temporal persecution is the ordinary course for Christians. Now, again, it's extremely difficult for us to say that. It's extremely easy for us to say that in the West. It would be much more difficult for us to say that if we lived in China. On the other hand— That's exactly what the underground church in China has been doing for decades. Right, exactly. Um, but it's my contention that uh, the, the reason why I say it is because it's my it's it's my sincere view that part of the anemia of the church in America in many many ways is it's that it has the liberty to be lukewarm. Um, you know, this is this is the other side of sort of the coin of religious liberty is that it is the you have the, the freedom uh, not to care. You have the freedom not to care. Right? Exactly. Exactly. The sort of privilege of indifference, and uh, and that has led, I think, to a great deal uh, that plus. Uh, relative affluence, I think, has led to a great deal of dysfunction in the church in the United States. And I'm not, again, I, be careful what you wish for, because wishing for religious persecution is not a very good idea. And wishing for religious persecution for other people is an even worse idea. I do not wish for the underground church in China to be um, to be persecuted. But what I wish for most of all for all Christians in, in every part of the world is for them to be faithful and uh, and for them to um, to have the perspective that says, that the temporal realities, even the temporal realities, the assets that we use for the for the promotion of the gospel, things like our schools, those temporal realities are secondary in importance as compared to the eternal reality of fidelity. And part of that fidelity is maintaining the communion of the church which Christ founded. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, the other thing is, I, there's, and, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not making the case that the Vatican should tear up the Vatican-China deal and walk away, um, much as I wish it had never been brought into existence, but I'm not I'm not saying that now because, you know, for exactly what you say is I don't wish extra persecution for the church in China by, you know, by no means do I. And I, I cannot predict, you know, while anyone could have predicted that this is where the Holy See would get to by doing this deal, I cannot predict what would happen if it pulled out. Right. I, I suspect very much that it would be very, very bad. Um, and I don't, I don't wish to see that happen. But the other thing is when you hear people talk about, uh, and, and particularly in Rome and particularly in the Secretariat of State, when they talk about, um, China and the church in China and the evangelization of China, they're always keen to say, well, China's a very special case. China's very much its own thing. You have to understand, you know, it's a very, we have to, we have to proceed in a, in a sort of, you know, sui generis way with China because it's, it, it's a very different, different ballgame there than anywhere else. But the problem is the church is universal. The church is global. There is a communion. And what happens in one member of the body affects all the others for good and for ill, certainly I think the faith of the Church Universal has benefited enormously. Um, perhaps I, I would argue it has failed to adequately value and pay pay right thanks to the underground church in China in, in its suffering to maintain communion with Rome over the decades. Um, but more recently, you know, there is there is a direct link, I think, between what the bishops in Germany are getting up to and calling for and uh-huh. what has been going on in China, that the bishops in Germany are seeing this and saying, well, this is the lengths the Holy See will go to to prevent a, a schismatic national church. So, you know, let's call their bluff. We let's know call their bluff and demand. We, we see that Beijing is able to demand a great deal of things that are, uh, that are contrary to the faith in various ways, um, and the Holy See is tolerant. And so w- let's... Let's They're see. not going to throw Cardinal Velke in prison if he doesn't go along for it. But you know what? They've got all the money, and they'll just threaten to turn the taps off if they don't get right. what they want. I think that's the implicit threat right now for the church in Germ- for, of the, from the church in Germany. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I feel like I ranted a little bit there, and I apologize. <laughs> Good. No, you don't have to apologize. I'm glad that you were able. I'm glad Ed, that you were able to talk about the thing that you say you never get to talk about. <laughs> Just Ed, let that go. Ed, what would you like to talk about now? I don't know. How how are we doing for time? Where are we? I that is a great question. We are we're doing okay for time. We're 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 forty five minutes into an hour long podcast. So if we run a, I don't have a game. I do. You have a game? I don't have a game. I, yeah, so we are. I had an idea. I had an idea. I'll tell you about it. Uh, I, I had an idea that since it's Lent, I and Lent is a, is you know forty days. I would do a sort of. 40 trivia where I would ask you like um, trivia about 40s. Um, you know, you know what a 40 is that I presume uh, a 40 is a it, it's a large bottle of beer in America, I believe. Ordinarily, sometimes beer, more often sort of malt liquor, but yeah, um, which is a cousin of beer. Um, um, so I had an idea that I would sort of ask you trivia about 40s, but then I realized that that would mean that I'd spend at least 
at least 20 minutes sort of looking for trivia about 40s, and I just decided that was not a good How use How much of my trivia time. can there be can about there be, right? I mean, a that's standardized part of the question, right? bottle size? That, well, I mean, it, it is a standardized bottle size, but it's somewhat unique, and there are only a limited number of manufacturers. So I thought I could ask you sort of who was the first brewery to offer uh, a 40, uh, you know, How much is 40 ounces? I, I mean, break this. Uh, uh, give me the benchmark of... I mean, I know how, what a like pint how many is. ounces are in a gallon. Is that your question? Well, I don't even really know how much a gallon is. I... <laughs> you don't know how much a gallon is. Look in your refrigerator at the milk. That's a gallon. There is no milk in my refrigerator. Okay. I don't have children. We have heavy cream for coffee. That's okay. And what is it in a quart container? I don't know. It's in that little rectangle. Okay, so there thing. are thirty. There are thirty-two. Give it to me in, in pints. Just what is it? A, I know what a pint is, and that's the that's God's chosen measurement for beer. So okay, how many I pints think is it? I think uh, I th- there are 32 ounces in a in a quart, and I think that there are two pints in a quart. Really? I think there are two pints in a quart. You're telling me that this is two and a half pints of beer? That that's what's being offered here? Uh, yes. I- I'm surprised you can get away with this in America. Selling that much beer in one No, not bottle? selling that much beer. I'm surprised people want to drink it because everyone over here likes their beer artificially chilled. So how could you consume it? Before it came up to room temperature, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, have you ever... <laughs> I can't believe we're doing... Have you ever consumed a 40? I mean, I've I've consumed said volume before, not... And, but and not I mean, from one container. Well, no, maybe possibly. I, they, I mean, they, are, they sell large bottles of beer in the UK as well. And But I mean, again, I, you know, if you're buying... If I'm buying bottled beer in London, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting something delicious i'm getting an ipa i'm getting an ale i'm getting a real ale of some kind and first i don't all, want that IPA artificially is, chilled first of all an ipa is not delicious second of all uh, ipa is the worst second of all you keep um, saying that do you know what an ipa is or are you just yes. are, do you have no, a particular not, ipa in mind that do you don't i like? know what an ipa is well but that's like I, saying I, you don't, I don't like think i don't think i know how to describe the level of condescension embedded in that question well it's like saying you don't like sandwiches it's you know the, the, you're talking about a whole range of things here that you know no, have wildly I, I, different tastes and you can't possibly think that's true their ipas have like characteristics of similarity which is what makes them that varietal of beer instead of another right well yes they're a pale ale that can be partially refrigerated if you like it slightly colder but most importantly it has a it's um, brewed in such a way that it has a high enough alcohol content, and it will keep. I mean, the reason it's called an IPA, India Pale Ale, is it was beer that was specifically brewed uh, in the UK to be sent to India for the Raj, and then it was specifically made to to be stored and enjoyed in the in the climate of the subcontinent. Now, those are the characteristics that... of IPAs. Those are thank you, uh, Professor. Those are the characteristics of IPAs. But uh, or, or those are the history of IPAs. But I'm not sure that you understand the characteristics of IPAs because it's an amber-colored, excellent half bitter. I would say it's very obvious... refreshing. It's the preferred beer for a summer's day. No, it's not. There's nothing delightful about the hoppiness of an IPA. Nothing. There's nothing delightful about the hoppiness of an IPA. And if you see some skinny Jan jeans flannel guy order an IPA, you can bet that he's doing it for a girl. Uh, I you've you've crossed into a couple of American cultural stereotypes here that I don't I don't necessarily feel <laughs> equipped to rebut. But I would take issue that IPAs are not universally very hoppy. Yes, um, they are. No. Yes, they are. See, this is why this is why I thought that you might know the history of the thing, but not actually know the thing. Yes, they are. The sort of characteristic of IPAs and the reason why they're suitable for export is because of their high content of hops. Yes, you can have IPAs, a high content, but yes, still not IPAs are universally hoppy. hoppy. Yes, IPAs are universally hoppy. I, I honestly, I don't even. Sometimes I honestly don't even know what to say to you because you, you say these ridiculous things that are manifestly untrue with such confidence that it's like I'm on the defensive, explaining to you why an IPA sucks, and it's like no, you should understand that, especially if you if you want to defend and say I like a hoppy beer because I have a an unrefined palate or something. Fine, but yes, IPAs are uniformly hoppy, buddy. That's the thing. Yeah, some are, some are. I've, Stop, I, for God's <laughs> sake. For God, you, it's like saying, oh, well, oh, basketballs aren't uniformly round. You know, I once I once saw a sort of ovular basketball that someone had sat upon. No, I, uh, basketballs are universally round and IPAs are universally happy. There's yeah, no, but basketballs there's no, come in different sizes. That's oh, for point. God's sake, there's no getting around it. There, there's no getting around that. I think what you mean to say is you're right. No, that's not what I mean. I, I think what I mean to say is you clearly do not have a wide experience of IPAs. Oh, my gosh.
Some really, of them could be very hoppy in taste, but others oh no, they can be they gosh. can they can be very it can be very understated and mellow and I enjoy it. No, they can't. I, I genuinely I genuinely do not know what to do with you sometimes. JD what? This, this feeling that you're feeling right now. What? Yes, Ed. I want you to bottle it and label it this is what I do to Ed every week. <laughs> Welcome to my world, buddy. <laughs> but you okay, so thank you. Thank you. You are playing a game. Yes. I honestly, I was so... I mean, you're wrong about IPAs, but I... uh, And it is true that you can get them that have more or less uh, distinctive hoppy tastes. Oh, gosh. You are... I'm going to get you some. I'm going to get you some. I'm going to get you a selection. I don't want them. I know what IPAs are. I do not need you to educate me in the ways of IPAs. I do not need that from you. I do not. I'm perfectly capable of making my own judgments. And in this case, I disagree with you, and I hold the commonly held position that IPAs are hoppy. I do not need you to send me a selection of freaking IPAs, Ed, after you've, like, researched or called up some guy, some friend of yours who's a scholar of beerology to tell you about the one IPA that's not happy. I don't need it in my life. No, the, so the Badger Brewery in Dorset has a See, wonderful... The Badger, the Badger Brewery in Dorset, for goodness sake. It's excellent beer. I, I don't know if you can get it. If, if, this is a listener challenge. If anyone knows how you can get it. I don't know if you can get it over here. I don't know. No, I've been trying. I keep looking. I've tried to order it over here. It's the grown-up equivalent of, yes, I have a girlfriend from Canada. I met her at summer camp. Do you, uh, do you know what I mean by that? Uh, I'm familiar with this sort of daytime them. television trope. I, I never went to summer camp. so <laughs> I, I No, but if anyone, seriously, if anyone listening to this knows how you can get um, Badger Brewery beer. <gasps> delivered in the u.s i would i would be most grateful if you could let me know either by email or by twitter dm or something because uh, i keep asking different liquor stores for it if they can get hold of it and they they don't seem to be able to please send me a badger brewery ipa from dorset as well if you're going to do that send him um oh gosh i'm, I'm trying to think what will be a really good one uh no, firsty ferret i think is probably the the sort of middle benchmark but you probably find that too hoppy um Ooh, uh, oh, what's it called? Hang on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I, I think I know what it's called, but I also think that that's an American euphemism for something bad, so I don't want to get it wrong. What? Oh, now you gotta tell me. Uh, no, I, uh, I don't want to get it wrong. I would say, hang on. Um, Golden Glory. That is the that is the one that I think you would really enjoy, JD. I think you would find that delicious, and I think you would. I think it would turn you around. Um, it is a. It is a. Then I album. too. Then I too could assist uh, insist to friends and podcasting partners that IPAs are not especially hoppy because I one time had a Golden Glory from the Badger Brewery of Dorset and it turned me around on the whole thing. And then I could pretend that I like soccer too. Well, I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> I don't know. If you're going to pretend you like IPAs, pretending you like soccer seems like the necessary next step. Well, that seems a because football fans universally like lager. I mean, that's why they're called lager louts. If you, oh if, friends, if for some reason you feel the need to affect, uh, you know, sort of oh. European or British culture, and and you like football, um, get a pint of Budweiser because that's what they drink. Oh. They're savages, really. Ed, thank you for blessing me. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for blessing me with this Lenten afternoon. I'm very grateful, and I'm sure our listeners are too. Uh, I hope that you continue to have a blessed Lent, and listeners, I hope that you do as well. I enjoyed that. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media LLC, an Ed and JD production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by the Badger Brewery Buccaneer himself, the Lager Lout Ed Condon, Pillar Podcast (laughs) co-founder and editor. Blessed Lent, one and all. I really got to you, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah.